0: Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much for Zechariah chapter 12 and, Lord, what you have for us and how, Lord, throughout the centuries that that this world has existed, this chapter has brought hope and brought um, vision and brought understanding to many people about the future and, and God, about your heart. And, Lord, I pray that your heart would be the thing that we get out of this chapter, that we would understand your heart and, and the way that you passionately love passionately love and give yourself for us all of yourself every part of you given to us and we uh, I pray Lord that that would transform transfigure us make us uh, just partake in your glory uh, God because you withhold nothing from us and so Lord we thank you for your word in this chapter and I pray that it blows our minds and blesses our hearts in your name I pray amen you guys excited yet? All right, well, today's uh, message is called Bullseye. Bullseye. As you know, that's in darts, the little tiny center in the middle. And uh, um, God is really good at hitting the bullseye. So look with me at Zechariah chapter 12. Fixing my table there. Okay. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1 says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Let's stop right there. This is like our introductory Uh, verse. And it's interesting because it's almost like the book of Revelation, chapters two and three. Remember when Jesus is writing those seven letters to the seven churches and he would begin each letter by saying this from Jesus. Thus here says Jesus, the faithful and true witness or the one who was dead and rose again. He's got all these different attributes. And for each church, he would give a very specific attribute of himself that related to that church and what they were going through, the part of him that would really bless them. And so here we see Jesus revealing, again, a part of him that that was important for the children of Israel to understand. And I think for us to understand as well, too. And so it says here that he stretches out the heavens, and then he lays the foundations of the earth, and then he forms the spirit of man within him. And I see a progression there. I see the biggest to like the medium, the earth, and then to the real small, the spirit within us. But yet, I think it reverses in order of importance. You have this universe, which is kind of important. The world, which is pretty important. We live on it. And then you have our soul, which is most most important. It's funny how the smallest is the most important. And he, it says here that he formed that spirit. And that's what's awesome is, because he formed the spirit, he knows how your spirit works. He even included an instruction manual for your spirit called the Bible. His Word. It's great for understanding what is going on with the Spirit because if you didn't have the Bible and you had anger in your heart, you could ask people, why am I angry? And they may tell you, well, go back and find out what your parents did to you when you were young. Maybe that's why you're angry. Or they would tell you this, that, or you'd go and you try to figure out why you're angry. And if we didn't have the Bible, it wouldn't, we wouldn't know. But the Bible gives us clarity about our soul. And the Bible says if you're angry, you need to repent. Give it to the Lord. It's, a, it's a, a, a symptom of a sin in your life, a deeper problem that the Lord can fix. And so we have these type of situations that come up where God knows how to fix something, but man doesn't really want all the advice. They don't want to look at that instruction manual very often. They think they know how to do it better. Kind of like when I, on Christmas morning, and my wife says, do not lose the instructions for these toys that we open. And yet, inevitably, I'm like, I got this, I got this. My manhood is tested every Christmas morning. And sometimes I succeed. And sometimes my wife gets angry at me. (laughs) Ha ha. But we do that. Anyway, moving on now to verse 2. It says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. A very important verse. For our day that we live in, a very important verse for everyone in the world to read and understand. And they would be honestly better off if they read this verse and understood what it was about. Because we have seen this verse fulfilled in our lifetime. And don't you just love it when you read something in the Bible and it's it's actually fulfilled before your very eyes? You know, it, it's it'd be like the children of Israel marching through the desert and, and they see the sea open up before them, kinda of like this view I have right now. I've got seats on this side and this and I got the blue carpet right in the middle, and it's like I get to see the very, you know, expanse divided and oh man, it's great. But but this verse has been fulfilled in our lives, and we can actually talk to people about it. That he will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness or to all the nations surrounding it. Last week, when we were studying in chapter 11, we saw at the end that the Antichrist was revealed. Do you remember his name? Do you remember how the Bible described him in chapter 11? It was the worthless shepherd. And we saw that he was contrasted with the good shepherd and how the two shepherds and their ways of governing. So... So now the, 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 the Bible kind of picks up, Zechariah's prophecies, kind of picking up, and you keep that in mind, that the Antichrist, we just saw him, and today we see God's mighty hand protecting Israel through this time of the Antichrist and up until Jesus himself returns. Okay? So there's a couple questions that we need to ask right now. And the questions are, why is God so focused on Israel During this time, and not the church. I mean, from study, we know that this time that we're reading about here in Zechariah, in this time of the Antichrist, is the tribulation. The seven years of God pouring out his wrath on the world and working with the nation of Israel. Taking care of the nation of Israel, blessing the nation of Israel, and supernaturally protecting the nation of Israel. But why all this focus on the nation of Israel? If the church is the way that God is working on the earth right now, why is Israel so important during the tribulation, which we believe, and I do believe, is not very far away? How can that be? And the answer to that is very simple, is that the church age is coming to an end very soon. The church will be taken to heaven before this time of God dealing with Israel, this seven years of God's grace being poured out on the nation of Israel. See, the church is a weird thing. It's a weird thing. You know the the Old Testament says zero about the church? Not a single word except that the Gentiles would be drawn to the Lord and that the Lord would save people from all, all nations. All right, so... In this time of the church, we're told by Paul that it was a mystery that was revealed to the apostles, that there would be this time where God is working through the church through his body, but that that time would come to an end. And and when that time came to an end, it would be God's time, the church would be taken up to heaven in what's called the rapture, and... God would begin dealing with the nation of Israel, bringing them back and fulfilling all the promises that were made here in the Old Testament. And so if you're ever reading the Old Testament and you're thinking, where is the church in all this? Understand that the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. And it was revealed in the New Testament. And it's for a certain special area of time. And then it goes back to God working with the nation of Israel. And that's why the church is not mentioned in any of these prophecies, or in chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. Have you ever been reading through the book of Revelation? In the beginning, you see seven letters to seven churches, and you're all, we're all cool with that. And then right after that, the scene shifts up into heaven. And you see the church up in heaven, praising God. And it says, multitudes upon multitudes of every tongue and nation and tribe, praising God up in heaven, Okay? and then the attention shifts back to earth in chapter 6 and you start in chapter 6 to see the tribulation unfold on earth and every time the characters are mentioned the church is absent church isn't there there are believers, they're saints but they're never called the church in fact it says remember at the end of every letter it says let spirit hear what the spirit says to the church but during that those chapters chapter six through nineteen, whenever it says that phrase, it says let the, let him who has an ear let the, him hear what the Spirit says. It doesn't say it to the church, it just says what the Spirit says. But then chapter nineteen comes and that seven years is over, and then the scene shifts back into heaven, and you have Jesus coming back to Earth with all these multitudes of people with him, and who do you think that is? It's the church with Jesus, coming back with him to the earth to set up his reign and kingdom here on the earth. So that's why these seven years, when the church is up in heaven, will be enjoying Jesus, and on earth, God's focus, his attention will be on Israel. And that's what this, this verse and these verses that we're going to read lay out for us, is that... This amazing prediction is that Jerusalem is going to be fought over, which has happened many times in the past, right? And number two, that Jerusalem will be a problem for the whole world. The Jerusalem problem, the problem of Jerusalem, is a commonly understood term today, uh, and it's, this problem is the greatest and most impossible political riddle in the world today. And people can't figure it out. It's very hard to understand. But uh, what do you do with this people? You know, who who gets the land? Is it the the Muslims who were there or or the Jews who came back in or the Christians? And there's all these different groups that claim to have ownership. and, And why can't they have peace? And it's a very sticky situation. And no one can figure it out. It's very interesting. And here it says that it will be a cup of drunkenness, which means anyone who tries to figure it out, basically Jerusalem makes people act stupid. Drunk. Without intelligence. And I, to, I want to explain it to you a little bit, okay? From the, from the Muslim perspective. They, they, they claim Jerusalem as their third holiest city today. But it's bizarre. Totally weird. Because Jerusalem is not mentioned once in the Quran. In addition, during the centuries in which Jerusalem was under complete Arab control, no Arab ruler or Islamic leader ever made it the object of of religious pilgrimage. Again, in a strange indifference toward the city, which is now considered their third holiest religious site in Islam after Mecca and Medina. Then, Jerusalem's importance to the Muslims came uh, from the belief that the Dome of the Rock Shrine is the rock where two significant events happened. Number one, where Abraham intended to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and where Muhammad allegedly ascended into heaven. Though this tradition is firmly in the Muslim mind, it is of recent origin. It was invented by Yasser Arafat's uncle, Haj Amin El husseini who was the past Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. I think that's how you say it. He promoted this myth in the 1920s and 1930s to arouse Arab passions against the growing Jewish presence in Jerusalem. Now, there's a verse in Quran that they point to that describes Muhammad's trip to heaven in their book, Surah 17, 1. It says, Glorified be he who carried his servant by night from the... Inviolable place of worship to a far distant place of worship, the neighborhood whereof we have blessed, that we might show him of our tokens. And the Islamic interpretation says the inviolable place of worship is Mecca, and this is accepted by everyone. It then says to a far and distant place of worship, and they say now that's Jerusalem, Uh, but this has no substantiation because Jerusalem has never been a place of Islamic worship. To at any time uh, at that time it was written nor would it be for centuries after Jerusalem isn't even mentioned by name in the Quran like I said so how could it be a place of worship according to the Quran most significantly inside the Dome of the Rock hundreds of verses from the Quran are inscribed and Surah Seventeen is isn't even among them The very passage that later supposedly justified the building of the Dome of the Rock is not even included among the hundreds of passages written inside the Dome of the Rock. So, Jerusalem makes people act crazy. And they don't even understand why. But God says it's true. And God says it's from Him. He's the one that's making all these people act crazy. Look at verse 3 now, okay? It says... And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would have it, uh, would heave it away, shall surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. And I will open my eyes on, um, on the house of Judah, and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness." And this has been fulfilled in our day as well. They even make movies about these verses. You may have seen them and not known that it was actually, you're watching a movie about the fulfillment of these verses. And let me explain this to you. You see, in 1973, Israel was attacked on Yom Kippur. It was called the, the Yom Kippur War, okay? So Syria decided they wanted to attack Israel on their most holy day, their day of uh, mourning over their sin, is the most holy day of their year. In fact, on that day there was only 163 men on duty in the Golan Heights up there by Syria. Okay, and the Israel was totally caught off guard. All right, and there was five thousand tanks from Syria coming down towards the Sea of Galilee, over the Golan Heights. And there was one guy, one tank team, piloted by this guy named Ziggy. Ziggy, the tank driver. And he saw this army of tanks coming down. And he was like, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. So he got in his tank with his team, and they... They went up over a hill and they shot and took down, took out a Syrian tank and backed up, scooted over a little bit, did it again. They did this for hours and hours and hours. And the Syrians believed with all their heart that there was a thousand tanks over there in Israel that they were fighting. And it was one guy. And by the end, he finally did get shot. But they survived, but they had to leave their tank. Before they got shot and had to leave their tank, they had destroyed 105 Syrian tanks on their own. Yeah, rock on, right? And, okay, so the Syrian army, okay, finally gets rid of him, and they're like, ugh. Jealous. (laughs) Embarrassing. <laughs> but they come down. They come over to the place of the Golan Heights where you overlook the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's like crazy. It's being like on the top of Pike's Peak and just looking over this lake. And you can see all the towns of Israel. And they unexplicably stopped and waited for eight hours. They could. It only takes an hour and a half to get from there over to the coast. And they could have easily taken out Israel's capital and the ports and and taken over the country in an hour and a half. And Israel's army was all at home. They were all at home on the holy day. They couldn't even communicate. Everything shuts down in Israel on that day. But they stopped for eight hours because they believed that 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 was too easy. That Israel was hiding somewhere and they were just waiting there, waiting for someone to... Attack them, or some trap or trick. And see, it was God striking them with madness. God fighting for Israel. God saying, I am the one who will fight for you. And everyone who comes and tries to, to cast away, the heave away this heavy stone will be cut into pieces. So get this. Back up a couple years. In so 1967, it was the six-day war. Okay? Israel, again, attacked <laughs> by Syria and Egypt. But check out what happened. Okay? Egypt was coming up through the Sinai Peninsula there. And they, they were bringing all these tanks and all these armies and just, just ready to attack, all right? Well, General Sharon, the same general from, uh, that, at this time in Israel, he, instead of meeting them, instead of meeting them he went around them along the coast and was going straight for gaza and it's definitely counterintuitive to army thinking and what but but god inspired him to do this and so they're heading straight to gaza and egypt realized they have no army in gaza israel was going to walk in and take over control of all of egypt and so Egypt stopped right there in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula and was like, where's the army we're supposed to be fighting? And they had no clue where the army was. And by the time they got news, Israel was already down by the Nile River. And so they, they just stopped. They, when, when they were going through the Sinai, they just stopped again, totally confused and sat there for like days, just confused, just sitting in their tanks. What do we do now? What do we do now? And God was striking them with madness, confusion. So much so that Israel, Egypt had to run to the UN and say, you need to stop this war or else we're going to destroy Israel. That was their pretense of why they wanted it stopped. But Israel was actually on the verge of destroying Egypt on that, in that day. Oh my goodness. God has been fighting for them. Okay, look, look with me. Um, let's, read, let's read verses 5 through 8, and then I'm going to come back to some. It says, And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength, in the Lord of hosts their God. And in that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile, and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. And they shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. Then or the Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. And in that day, verse eight, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. David was an awesome warrior. God and in the same way that he was he killed 500 Philistines in one day by himself. And he's saying here that the in the end times the feeblest in Israel will be like David. And cuz God will supernaturally enable them. Now if you go to Israel today their army is the most ragtag looking. I mean their boots are all scuffed up and their Shirts are buttoned wrong, and they got beards and hair, and they're wearing baseball. I mean, they are just—they look horrific. They—they they look straight out of like high school, or, or like straight out of an Abercrombie and Fitch catalog. I don't know, one of the two. Just, just crazy. And you know, if you want a good-looking army, you go to to Central America. Those armies, you know, they they got the white and they stand and uh, you know, but they can't fight worth nothing. But the, the Israel army, they are the best army in the world. Those who study war say Israel's army is second to none. They know how to fight. They know, and, and this is actually fulfillment of God. God taking care of them. I want to explain to you a couple more things that happen that, that show this. Okay? So when the 1967 war was happening, we told you what would happen in the south with, Israel, with Egypt. But in the north, Syria came down to attack too. And in 67, they knew that they had to take the Golan Heights because the Golan Heights is where Syria hid all these mortars and they were just fire shells down around the Sea of Galilee and all the Jews that lived down there, they spent most of their lives growing up in bomb shelters because they were constantly getting lobbed at, okay? So, they knew that they needed to take this opportunity, being attacked, to take the Golan Heights. And so, (laughs) there's this one guy. So, the Golan Heights is a very steep Thing and you have to like climb up it and there's this road that winds back and forth and then in there's like all these different uh, uh, what are they, bunkers okay and I actually drove up there and saw all these bunkers that are still there today you can drive on that road okay but during that time all these bunkers were there and they were had machine gunners in it well there's this one guy who got his arm shot off this Jewish guy and he got really angry about it and so he's he, No one could stop him and he, he, with one arm, he strapped all these grenades on him and he started running up the hill, angry, yelling at them. And we know about this because the Syrians wrote about it. And he would run up the hill and he'd take a grenade and he'd throw it in the thing while being shot and his body's just being ripped up. And he's taking a grenade and throwing it in and taking out a a bunker and then going to the next and taking out that. He took out five bunkers before he died. And you hear these stories, and you're like, oh my goodness. Were, the, the, the most feeble among them being like David? That's pretty crazy. You had the story of Ari Cohen, who was a spy in Syria before this, and then up until this time. And, you know, he was uh, actually almost... he was. Uh, there was a movement to actually make him the prime minister of Syria. But he was in their government, and, you know, he was telling all the people... He's like, you know what we should do? What you should do to kind of boost the morale over there. And I, I learned this from uh, the, my tour guide over there in Israel. He told us this story. He's like, what you should do. And he's so he's a Jewish spy. Like he's from Israel, but he's over there in the government of Syria. And he's like, what you should do is you should, to boost morale and all the guys that have to stay in these bunkers, you should just plant sycamore trees all around them in big circles, like just a circle around it. And this is about 10 years earlier. And And they're like, that's a great idea. It's a great idea. (laughs) And you can actually imagine what happened. They planted sycamore trees around every single one of their bunkers and all their military installations all in the Golan Heights. And ten years later, the Israeli Air Force was just like, where should we bomb? Oh, how about where all the circles are? There's like targets on the ground. And they just went in and softened up all these bunkers with bomb, And that's why Israel was able to say, you know, you have these amazing stories. There was even one story of the tanks. They were, they were going in, uh, they were following this path, and the entire tank uh, regiment, I don't know, group, what you call it, but they saw a flaming beam standing in the middle of the road, Pointing to go north, the entire all of the Jewish guys in the, they all saw it, okay So they turned north and went around and had some victory. I don't know, but because all the tanks were churning kind of tr- up all the dust and stuff, the, the last guy didn't see them all turn. and he went straight on the road and he got blown up because he drove right into this huge Syrian minefield. And all the the guys in there, they say, God sent an angel to protect us. And you're like, wow, is this really the real deal? You know, and then you go back even further to 1948. And Israel was outnumbered 40 to 1 and still won their independence. And there's miraculous stories in 1948 as well. And so all this is, you know, if you're a betting person, you need to bet on Israel. You know, and when you go over there and you see it for yourself, it will really help you to understand how these things, this verse, these verses that we just read are true today, that God is fighting for Israel even now. It's true. You know, they even make t-shirts over there in Israel uh, that, that say, don't worry, they really love Americans. Like, you go over there, and they're they're just, they're very grateful and thankful, and they're, they're awesome. But they say, they have a shirt, so they say, don't worry, America, Israel is behind you. And I love it, because I agree. And they have this other t-shirt that lists all the nations that have fought to destroy Israel. And then it has where they're at right now. And they're all destroyed, 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 destroyed. And then it has Syria, and we'll see. <laughs> I love it. So, God says he's going to make them fight like David. And then we come to verse 9. And verse 9 says, In that day, or it shall be in that day, that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I wish that they would put this verse up in the middle of the UN. Just mount it there for them to look at. Because every law that they pass and everything that they do is always against Israel. And they're going to see that if you're against Israel, God is against you. Revelation chapter 16 and 19 talk about this final battle of Armageddon that's going to be fought there in Jerusalem, or in the Valley of Jezreel, just north of Jerusalem. Um, and I'm going to read you this quote from Spurgeon. Okay, Spurgeon lived 1800s, died in 1915. All right, When was Israel a nation? 1948. Israel, uh, Spurgeon died in 1915. I just wanted to point that out. He says it is a beautiful remark of the old, of an old divine. Uh, nope, this is not the right one. This is it. We know of a surety, because God has said it, that the Jews will be restored to their own land, and that they shall inherit the goodly country which the Lord has given unto their fathers by a covenant of salt forever. But better still, they shall be converted to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, and shall see him in the house of David, and restored to the throne of Israel. Spurgeon had good theology good eschatology because he knew that Israel would come back into their land. That was before it was happening and he knew it and he taught about it. And that's, that's a good teacher where he had no evidence but yet he was, do, he was teaching the right thing. Alright. So, I'm going to read you another quote from Swarjan right now that kind of shifts our attention. It says, It is a beautiful remark of an old divine that eyes are made for two things at least. First, to look with and next to weep with. The eye which looks to the one, to the pierced one is the eye which weeps for him. So look with me in chapter 12, verse 10. It says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn So, remember, they were looking at this Antichrist before, all through the tribulation and the worthless shepherd that we learned about last week. And now they turn their attention to Jesus. So at the end of the tribulation, all these armies are there for battle, and the Lord is against them, and he's committed to destroying them, and so he destroys them all in the battle of Armageddon. And Israel's left. And Jesus has just come down. And they see him. And they look upon him, it says, who they pierced. A little later in chapter thirteen, we're gonna see a really amazing verse. They're gonna ask him where he got these wounds between his arms. Where'd you get these pierced, pierced arms? And he's gonna say to them, I got them in the house of my friends. Wow. They will look on him whom they pierced and they will mourn, it says. God gives Israel a spirit of humble repentance. How will they finally look at and consider Jesus when Jesus comes back? You know they see the they see him for who he really is as the Messiah. They the same people who previously said he will not rule over us, but now they're saved. They're all believed, which fulfills Romans chapter eleven verse twenty six, which says eleven twenty six. So all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So Paul said in Romans, every Jew who's alive at this last day will be saved, will believe. It's awesome. So Jesus says, look at me. Jesus is God. And he proved it right here. It's awesome. Now look at verse 11. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the morning of Hadad Rahman in the play of Plain of Megiddo, this is when the great King Jehoshaphat died. And the land shall mourn and every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their, fa- their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of Shimei by himself by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. So this event, them seeing Jesus finally, causes them to weep and mourn bitterly. It cuts them to the heart like an an arrow to the heart, like a bullseye, all right? Jesus shoots a bullseye and he gets them. And it it works. Even the hardest heart is melted by, by his piercing, by the piercing power of his love, all right? So get this. Turn with me to John, chapter 19. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. You've got to see this. You have to see it. Chapter 19, verse 31, in the book of John. It's actually going to quote the verse we just read from Zechariah. He says here in John chapter 19, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, the, uh, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately, blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows what, is telling, what he's telling is the truth, so that you may believe. So John, John, our buddy John, who writes this book, he draws your attention to this piercing of Jesus, and he says that when he was pierced, water and blood came out. And then he makes this statement, and he says, "You guys got to understand that this is true. This is true, and it's so that you can believe that I'm writing this." And then look what he says. He says, 4, verse thirty-six, four. These things were done that the Scripture might be fulfilled." What he just wrote about Jesus having his side pierced was that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says none of his bones shall be broken. Okay, so that's from Psalm 34, which says none of his bones would be broken, so he couldn't have his legs broken. And, again, in another scripture, which we just read in Zechariah, they shall look on him whom they pierced. So this piercing, this piercing is really vital, and it teaches us, I think six things, I'm just going to tell you real quick, six things about this piercing that really matters to us, why it matters to us. Number one, it fulfills prophecy. We just saw that the bones, that his bones would not be broken, so it was prophesied that bones wouldn't be broken. Number two, that he would be pierced. We got both of those, okay? He was not only pierced in his side, where else was he pierced? His hands, his feet, his scalp with the, the thorns pierced all over the place. Number two, keeping of typology. He was pierced because it keeps with the types. You know, in in Exodus chapter 12, it describes the Passover lamb. And this Passover lamb was not to have any bones broken. Why do you think the Bible says he wasn't to have any bones broken? Because it was a picture of Jesus. Number three, it reveals Jesus emotionally. It says when he was pierced, that blood and water came out. And scientifically, medically, this is a condition called coronary, coronary, coronary thrombosis, okay? Happens a lot when people die of heart enlargement, and uh, when the heart is under extreme pressure, it's, it's when the heart literally gives out and breaks, just stops working. And, and so some people might say, oh, Jesus died of a broken heart, But and that's cool to hear, but it's not actually true. Um, He died when he released his spirit. But you could say, medically and scientifically, that he died with a broken heart. He died with a broken heart. So it it helps us to understand the emotional trauma and stress that Jesus was under. His heart, his love, poured out for us. With this water and blood, it proves to us his condition. Number four, it shows us the sacrament's priority. You know, water and blood, speaking of baptism and communion, how important those things are. Paul said that many of you are sick and have died because you are not giving worth to communion. That's pretty interesting. Hmm. It's very important for us to remember the Lord's body. Number five, the mystery of birth. Blood and water are the fluids that come out in childbirth, and in a sense, Jesus was birthing his bride through his side. Which is very interesting because it makes me think of Adam. Where did Adam's bride come from? Well, God said, go to sleep, Adam. And God opened Adam's side and made the woman, his bride, from his side. It's kind of amazing that Jesus does the same thing. Number six, the last little point here is, it makes us think of salvation in totality. That, you know, we know our justification came by the blood of Jesus and as the priests in the Old Testament would put blood on their bodies, on their ears and fingers and big toes, you know, before they could go in to the promised land, there had to be blood. But then they also would go and wash with water from the basin to, to overcome sin. So the blood spoke of how they were, God was, was taking away their sin, but then the water spoke of their cleansing as well and their victory over sin. And I just want to read to you 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. And it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He who he who is sorry, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes in Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. So John, the same guy who wrote in the book of John what we just read where he said, you've got to understand this, that when Jesus was stabbed, when he was thrust through with that uh, spear, that water and blood came out that was really important. You've got to understand it. Then he writes a letter in 1 John and he says, you know what? It's by believing in those two things that you are saved. And it's the Spirit... It's all talking about the Spirit. The blood justifies you, but then the Spirit comes into your life and fills up your life. Now look back with me at Zechariah chapter 12, and actually we're just going to read chapter 13, verse 1, the first verse of the next chapter. We can't get all the way through the next chapter tonight because it's obviously taking forever. But <coughs> look with me just at the first verse. It says, it says In that day a fountain shall be opened up for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. See, that piercing opened up a fountain that cleanses us and gives us daily victory in our lives. As you read Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, it it gives us the final full... um, fulfillment of this prophecy and it says he showed me a pure river of water of life clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and from the the Lamb and, in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was, a tr- was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each one yielding his fruit in its month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and there shall go there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and, and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants will, shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and no need for a lamp and no light. Uh, of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Have you allowed Jesus to pierce your heart with his love and heal you and produce that, that blood and water in your life? Have you considered his pierced heart? I'll read one last verse to you. It's in John chapter 12, verse 32. It says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, all men to me. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. You know, it's not hard to witness to someone. It's not really. All you have to do is say, Jesus died on the cross. And they'll say, what? And you just explain it. He loves you so much. Oh, but you don't know what I've been through. You don't know the 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 messed up life I had. You don't know how wicked I am. You don't know what I think about. You don't know what I struggle with. You don't know what I believe. And you don't have to. I'm telling you guys as believers, you don't have to deal with any of that. You don't. You just say, Jesus died for you on the cross, and He loves you, and He wants a relationship with you. Come with me to church. Learn about him. Learn about his love. And, and it's life changing. It's life changing because when they look upon him whom they pierced, what happens? They believe. They're made clean. They're made new. That's what happens. That's how you witness to someone. You just show them Jesus. It's so easy. Sometimes it can be scary. You know, and it can be embarrassing. And, but when you, when you start stepping out, when you start taking those steps of faith to say, you've you just got to meet Jesus. What can I tell you? Jesus changed my life. He'll change yours. It's awesome. So I know we've gone long today, so we'll wrap it up. I apologize for the length, but let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for Zechariah chapter 12 and, and your word that is being fulfilled before our very eyes. And most importantly, the word that when we look upon you, Lord, this fountain of life and this water and blood that flowed out of you when you were pierced just pours over our lives. Lord, thank you for being pierced for me. Thank you for dying and birthing your church, Lord God. And thank you for the blood and water. Thank you for the communion we have and the new life we have and the cleansing that we have. God, all these things are your glory and we give it to you. We thank you for each other in this room and how, Lord, we care and love each other. And I pray that, Lord, we would love each other more and we would, we would serve you by serving each other. In your name we pray, amen.